SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. Hey, listen, thanks for everything, Ace, really, but uh, there's just one tiny little thing. <laughs> I'm going to need those photos. <laughs> this is one secret I'd like to keep a secret. <laughs> no sweat, my dual-natured compadre. Take care, then. Boo-bye now. Let's do a podcast that looks at movies in a franchise one film at a time. Uh, I'm your host, Matt. With me is Thrasher. I'm Barocco, Rococo, Roman Greco, Hip Hop, Bebop, somebody stop me! And, uh, you know, we just finished talking about three Ace Ventura films, and next we'll be talking about The Mask, but uh, before we do that, this episode is due to a find of Thrasher's uh, excellent detective work. He found out uh, in the late 90s there was animated series of uh, The Mask and Ace Ventura, and they actually did a crossover episode that was the um, end, it was the final episode of The Mask series, and it was the end of season two of Ace Ventura, the animated series. And it probably would have been the absolute final episode of the Ace Ventura series, except that, that episode came out in, in uh, 1997. Inexplicably, the Ace Ventura animated series got a third season in 1999. Yeah, when Nickelodeon was airing the, the repeats, which doesn't happen too often. You see it happen a little bit. You know, TBS did it with uh, Seth MacFarlane's American Dad show. Um, Comedy Central did it with Futurama. Give it some more seasons way after the fact. But yeah, it is um, unusual. I get you know that I guess that gives Ace Ventura the animated series the the distinction of being the first animated series revival because of another network. I I don't know if it's a different network, but I I know in the eighties they did more Jetsons episodes. Oh, you know what? That's true for syndication. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then the, then I will say the Jetsons has that distinction. But yeah, you know, I had never seen um, either of these shows. In fact, I didn't even know there was an Ace Ventura cartoon, really. And, and who would have a... known that one day it would cross over with the Mobile Armored Strike Command? Really? No, no, that, that's oh, that's a joke about the TV series Mask from the early 80s. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Um, which I've never seen. I've heard the theme song, good theme song. but It's an amazing theme song with one of the coolest music videos ever as its opening sequence. Yeah, uh, you know, so many of those 80s cartoons had better animation in the theme songs than in the show itself. Which is not exactly the case with the Mask animated series. Here's something I want to put to you as we we review this. Do we want to just discuss this as if it's one full body of work, or do you really want to break it down between the Mask episode and the Ace Ventura episode? I want to break it down because I, I think the stories are pretty separated. There's not much... 
There's not like a overarching story between the two episodes. Yeah, and that and that seems like such a missed me. opportunity. Yeah. And should have been so doable because both episodes were written by Dwayne Caprizi. So you'd think that Dwayne could have crafted a narrative that would have like that would have been worthy of this kind of crossover because if if you had told me uh when Ace Ventura and the Mask came out, that one day those characters would meet each other, I would have thought that would be the coolest thing in the in the world. And that's not quite what we get. Mm. It, it's not worthy of the of the crossover that my imagination would have provided. Yeah, it's it's uh, strange to say the least. And what I, what also I find strange is these. Uh, Ace Ventura and The Mask never received, like, a, a series release on DVD or anything. You might have had a VHS or two way back, but... Um... Well, there was there was an uh, Ace Ventura DVD set that had, like, three episodes of the animated series on it. But, yeah, as far as I know, at least in the States, there's no complete set of either of these. However, and I find this really surprising, in 2015, Warner Archive which is a print-on-demand uh, sort of service for DVDs in their catalog where they don't want to, you know, do a full-fledged thing and have stuff to retail if you don't order if they'll print it on demand, uh, has the complete Dumb and Dumber animated series available on DVD. You know, th that's where I got my complete series of the Pirates of Darkwater. It is a fantastic resource. Yeah, it is, and it is, and I wish more uh, companies would would do that because I get it you know not a lot of people are going to get Dumb and Dumber the animated series or Pirates of Darkwater or whatever but it's um yeah just one of those things but yeah so let's start with the the first part or I guess before we do Thrasher were you familiar with the, either of these cartoons I I'm glad you brought that up because I knew both of these cartoons existed but I did not watch uh either one of them uh for for a number of reasons but at, at this point so in a previous episodes as faithful listeners may recall uh we often use Jurassic Park as a kind of threshold uh you know we, we mm. denote movies with special effects as existing either before or after Jurassic Park, and we often, sometimes fairly, sometimes unfairly, judge their effects by that standard. Um, and the 90s had a similar, have a similar threshold for animation, because both of these series exist in a post-Batman the Animated Series world. And in, in the 90s, Batman the Animated Series and The Simpsons redefined what television animation could be uh and by this time you also had uh a great series like uh animaniacs uh the superman animated series all uh pinky and the brain all of which were on uh, kids wb at this point and they they essentially showed that you could have a show that's well written well acted and well animated and that's the threshold i judge i judge cartoons as being pre and post simpsons and batman and this show, this show simply fails at that. When when this when these shows came out, I took one look at the character designs and animation, and I gave it a complete pass. And now, having watched this crossover twice, I don't think overall, I don't think I made the wrong decision. Um, these were two series that failed to live up to the standard of of Batman the animated series, and I realize that is a ridiculously high watermark. But these are two shows that don't even try. Hmm. 
It is, uh, yeah, you know, I, I look at, one thing I did wonder when we were going to watch these is uh, I, I looked briefly at the series and said, well, the, the art style is quite different. In the Ace Ventura Pet Detective, it's more um, caricature and sort of overdone features. In the mask, it, for lack of a better term, looks like a lot of... Uh, you know, mediocre 90s cartoons from the time. Yeah, it, it is that... It reminded that, me of the Spider-Man animated series in, in some ways, how it looks. Yeah, it, ha every, it has that generic, that generic uh, late 80s, early 90s uh, animated style where all the colors are kind of washed out, the mm -hmm. skin tones are unnatural. Um, you, can, you can see all, all the flaws in the animation are, are up for display. There's no artful concealment of the limitations of the form. And um, when I saw it, I thought, hmm, are they going to make Ace Ventura look more in the style of the mask when he shows up in the show, and vice versa? And the answer is no. Yeah, mm. I, I have to give them nothing but credit for that, uh, is that, yeah, Ace Ventura always looks like Ace Ventura, regardless of what show he's on, and the mask always looks like the mask, uh, no matter what show he's on. And I... I will say they made the right choice by not even attempting to reconcile the character designs or animation style of the two shows. Yeah, it's a very unusual um, look, but I think it works. It adds to the bizarre nature. And um, the first of these two-part episodes, it's uh, it deals with sort of the main villain of the Mask series called Dr. Pretorius, who's voiced by Tim Curry, Who's a human head and sort of a spider body? Yeah, that rides around on a headless robot body, and you know, just your typical mad scientist shenanigans, but but given greater life by the voice of Tim Curry. And he kidnaps uh, Stanley Ipkiss's dog Milo. Well, it's actually kind of cool. So, like, I this episode has an interesting structure to it because the mask for for reasons that are never quite explained is sunning himself in the park uh, and nobody yeah. seems to notice or care of uh, which violating one of the rules of the movie that the mask can only come out at night um and dr pretorius is there poorly disguised as an ice cream man with this laser in his ice cream truck and you think he's firing the laser off randomly but if you'll notice he does hit a person, and it is a person that comes back later in the episode. But yeah, he hits he hits this person, but then he also hits Stanley's dog. Uh, and whatever his evil scheme was, him zapping the dog has complicated the evil scheme. So that night, he uses a Dr. Octopus arm to steal Milo the dog from Stanley's apartment. Stanley Ipkiss being the secret identity of the mask. And uh, yeah. when he realizes that his dog is missing, he wants to find him. But at the same time, this ad comes on TV for this nightclub that's having a limbo competition. And he realizes if he puts on the mask to find Milo, the mask's lust for limbo is going to make him disregard the chase and just do that. So, which is actually a really creative way to not have Stanley immediately put on the mask. And that's when he sees another ad on TV for Ace Ventura's pet detective service and figures, well, what the hell? I need a pet detective. I'm going to hire this guy. And I do appreciate when Ace Ventura shows up, he's bent over and speaking from his ass. Yeah, they do. Uh, they do uh, completely. <laughs> they, they do. They do try to use as many running gags from both movies as possible. Including, you know, a lot from the second one, like the take care now. Bye bye then. Um, 
where you're just, just humping the air going, yes, yes, yes. I think that's from the first one. But, yeah, it's a lot of... That really, you know, they do that one. The, the, the occasional loo-hoo-zah-her. Yes, or variations thereof. It's... Um, so I want to I want to praise uh, one thing uh, about this uh, with this episode. So the the animation has some significant flaws, and in fact, there's a low point that I'm going to bring up later. Um, but when Ace Ventura and the Mask first share screen time and they're greeting each other and kind of moving around each other, the animation gets 25 percent better. Like whoever whoever animated the scene where they meet for the first time clearly gave a damn and was clearly a little bit thrilled that they were animating this crossover because the their the, the character designs become a bit sharper, their motions become more fluid, there's more character in their movements. I was not expecting that jump in quality. I kinda I kinda wish it had carried through the rest of the episode, but it left a very good impression on me. It's also uh, worth noting that um, in, in The Mask, the, the lead character, Stanley Ipkiss, is voiced by Rob Paulson, who uh, perhaps is best known for doing Yakko and Animaniacs and Pinky and Pinky on the Brain. Um, and Ace Ventura is voiced by uh, Michael Dangerfield, who's credited as Michael Hall. And um, what, what do you think of how they sound compared to Jim Carrey or, or with what they're trying to do? Well, Michael, Michael Dangerfield is doing a really, really good Jim Carrey impression. I mean, it, it is an impression. He's not really putting his own flair on the voice, but damned if he doesn't sound and act exactly like Jim Carrey did in that role. I mean, it is it is dead on, and I can, I can really appreciate that. Um, Paulson uh, as Stanley Ipkiss, I think Paulson is great as The Mask. As Stanley Ipkiss, I feel like... I feel like he makes him a little bit too nebbish like stanley is a nebbish yeah. character type but I, I think he hits that a little bit too hard because if, if you're doing the mask animated series the mask should be the craziest thing on your show but there are moments when the nebbishness of stanley ipkiss passes into caricature and gets too over the top and that's something that i think jim carrey hit better in the movie he does play stanley as a very very normal guy and I don't get I don't get that same level of normalcy in the animated version. Yeah, and the, and as Stanley Ipkiss, it sounds more like Rob Paulson's speaking voice. That being said, which is not for, bad though, it's a distinct no, no, voice. It's, it's, uh, it's good, you know. It's it's not much different from what he did as Raphael in the uh, original Ninja Turtle show from the eighties. Oh but yeah, with um, Rob Paulson, I mean, he actually can sound enough like Jim Carrey, where he would um, dub some of his lines when Jim Carrey wasn't available in such movies like Liar Liar. Huh, no, I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And, and they do that with some bigger actors where, you know, they're not always available, and so they have a, a voiceover sound to, like, dub in um, sort of last-minute replacement in the dialogue. Not available to do something you can do over the phone. Well, I mean, they want you to do that in a studio, typically, but yeah, right. That is true. Yeah, but we do we do get some neat stuff, you know, with them playing off of each other, and I do like uh, I do like uh, you know Stanley he stashes the mask away so that he's not tempted to use it, but also so that Ace and the monkey don't find it. And one of the one of the staples of crossovers, especially between heroes, is when is 
when the heroes fight each other. That That is a standard yes. staple of crossover, going back to the golden age of comic books. But it's also become something of a cliche. There's plenty of crossovers where they don't even bother setting up this fight. But the one thing that I really love is that the is that Ace being a detective notices that Stanley is hiding something from him and that makes Stanley suspicious and a suspect. So you immediately get tension between the two that justifies their uh their conflict later on. Mm. But they do some they do some shtick with the landlady. There's a poo joke uh and uh Ace decides to uh decides to go out and do uh do some sneaking around. Uh, and Stanley decides that, well, Ace, Ace is so crazy, I guess I can't really trust him to find my dog, so I'm going to have to resort to the mask. Uh, he puts on the mask, uh, calls out Milo's name, can't find him, and decides to go straight to the limbo club, uh, and, excuse me, and, uh, Ace notices that there's now this weird guy looking for Milo, and that, that leads to their conflict. They, they end up having a brawl in an alley. (laughs) Yeah, they do, and it's it's nice that Ace Ventura gets freaked out by the mask. Yeah, well, it's not something it's not something normal to him. He's never encountered magic before. Uh, but something else I do like about uh, I do like about this conflict is that is that Ace very quickly determines, oh, the mask operates on cartoon physics. I'm an oddball. I know cartoons, <laughs> and so he he's able to use that knowledge to get the to get the mask squashed flat uh, by a uh, dumpster that he uh, he uh, knocks a support off of. Right, and it's pretty fun. And like you know, I love that bit where the mask is flattened and Ace starts going through his pockets looking for clues and keeps pulling out increasingly more improbable things. Hmm. But then that leads us to uh, then that leads us to to the to the chase. Uh, when the mask comes back, Ace uh, steals a uni- uh, steals a, uh, a tricycle motorcycle thing that he pulled out of the mask's pocket. Uh, runs off. The mask chases him in a sports car that he pulls out of his pocket, and they both crash into the nightclub doing the limbo competition. And the mask accidentally made their world record by crashing and flying under the limbo bar. Which doesn't quite work because he's clearly in front of it, so it's unclear how he went under it while landing in front of it. And then he goes back and makes himself like as thin as a piece of paper to do it again, doesn't he? Oh well, the mask does, yeah, mask to, to beat to beat Ace Ventura's record because Ace realizes that the mask cares about Limbo and starts like challenging him, which is a pretty cool rivalry. I like that their 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 rivalry isn't just in the form of uh, physical violence, but. This brings and, and the mask does win the competition after he rolls himself flat, which this brings up a good a good question. So I guess there's nothing in the rule books that says you can't use magic or superpowers in this competition. Yeah, I guess not. It's um Yeah, people I mean, they seem to know the mask as a known entity. People don't, you know, freak out like who the hell is this guy like they do in the movie sort of. Yeah, I guess I guess they they they've read they've decided uh, collectively that as long as they're not a criminal, he won't really fuck with them too much. Um, I'll just say uh, I want to talk about uh, Jim Cummings as the announcer at the nightclub. Jim Jim doing his most over the top Ricky Ricardo impersonation. Yeah, it's uh, I thought it was it was pretty good. Although the look of the character, I don't think quite matched the voice. 
Well, it doesn't even match the style of the series. Like, the eyes are too big, the hair is too weird. Yeah, it does seem a bit... Um, I guess what I'm saying strange. is Jim Cummings is a brilliant voice actor, and I miss him. I wish he showed up on more things. Hmm. But it was great hearing him at his height. Yeah. But uh, as all crossovers have, there is a uh, there is a reconciliation between our heroes because the mask uh, is tricked into doing a pole vault, ends up flying out of the nightclub and lands on top of a police car. And I guess this is a running gag in the series. But there's two police detectives in the police car that apparently are always trying to catch the mask. Uh, and you know, Ace Ventura shows up and presses charges against the mask. They handcuff him, but then. Um, it's, but then there's a, a call comes in on the police radio that the town has an air and space center and it's being uh, it's uh, being robbed and that one of the assailants is a dog uh, and Ace realizes oh well that's Milo so obviously if the dog's there the mask didn't kidnap him he's got an alibi so then Ace demands to drop the charges against the mask. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but the mask escapes using cartoon physics by replacing himself with a potato sack stuffed with bombs with his face on it. Um, and then the two realize, oh, we both want to save Milo. Let's team up, which is always the best part of any crossover. They jump into a giant M-shaped rocket ship and fly to the Air and Space Center. That's right. And here we get this uh, bit of business with the, you know, we're called Dr. Pretorius's uh, ice cream machine laser thing. Uh, you get a business where the machine goes sort of haywire. Oh, no, that doesn't happen until much later. Oh, okay. Because remember, they, 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 uh, they show up to, uh, they show up to, uh, disguised as, uh, or the disguise, they show up as, as cowboys, uh, to, um, to call, to call Dr. Pretorius out. There's, he's got a big, you know, battle body. There's a whole fight. You, uh, they end up escaping with Milo, but Milo starts talking to them. And you find out that the laser gun, it was meant to suck out the information in people's brains. And because the dog got zapped in it, turns out the first person who got zapped, who was clearly in the frame at the beginning of the show, was this NASA scientist who knew all these security codes. But because the dog got zapped, all of his knowledge and the security codes are now in Milo's head. Uh, and so Pretorius needed those codes to get into the Air and Space Center. So now they've got to find the scientist so that they can switch their brainwaves back. And they do find the scientist in Landfill Park behaving like a dog. So then they realize, well, we got to switch it back. We've got to track down Dr. Pretorius again. So they go back to the Air and Space Center. And that's when you find out what Dr. Pretorius's master plan is. That apparently a space probe came back from Mars, had a fossilized Martian skull in it, but Pretorius took DNA from the skull, cloned a Martian Cyclops, and then we get a crazy fight scene between all the characters. Which, yes, does culminate with Ace futzing with the laser and everybody getting zapped and everybody starts randomly uh, switching bodies. Which is a great idea, but they don't do enough with it. No, the only real fact, thing they do the only real thing they do with it is have have the characters' voices and personalities coming out of the other characters' mouths. And you notice, you know, some of the, the shortcuts in the animation. I notice here you have times where the lasers hit people, but they don't cut to the people being hit. You just hear it off screen. 
Yeah, and everybody kind of has one phrase they say post-switch each time, which you really start to notice the repetition on the soundtrack. And this is where the animation low point is for me. Because at one point, the mask is fighting the Cyclops, and he turns into this turn-of-the-century boxer. Uh, and he does this... He's supposed to be doing a wind-up before a punch, but all mm. the wind-up is are two frames with his arm kind of up and his arm kind of down, <laughs> which they cycle through. There's no in-between animation. It looks so bad, I wanted to turn it off. Yeah... But all the and this is another thing with with the, all the the catchphrases. Um, every time Pretorius ends up in a new body, he says Milo, which I did not make any sense to me until I did some more research on the series. Normally, he has a bumbling sidekick called Milo, uh, but he's not in this episode, so I don't know why Pretorius is is calling for him. But but he just, just keeps saying yeah. Milo. It's so out of place. But all the craziness happens, uh, and in the end, everyone gets back into their own bodies, except for Pretorius and the Martian, who are in each other's bodies. Um, Ace Ventura throws them into a space capsule. Uh, the mask launches the space capsule to Mars. And this is when we get another glaring animation mistake. So when they launch the, they launch the capsule into space, they cut to a shot of space with the rocket streaking past... Earth is in that shot. Hmm. So it's like it's like they're leaving Earth, passing Earth, and then which, yeah, okay, they could be doing a slingshot thing, but it it is such an extreme angle. It's it's like they think there's an extra Earth out there. <laughs> Jeez. But you know everything everything winds down. Uh, Milo is back home. Uh, uh, Stanley Epicus and the Mask, they they part ways. I guess Ace got paid. I certainly hope he did. Ace hops into his car and leaves, and his last line is a non-sequitur because the monkey and turns out he has the mask. Uh, and Ace has this non-sequitur Back to the Future reference. Masks? Where we're going, they don't have masks. Then Stanley realizes the mask is gone and uh, starts running after the car, and normally that would be a bad joke to end an episode on, but that... Uh, the mask being in Ace's car is the bridge that gets us into the Ace Ventura half of this crossover. Yeah, and there's the whole, you know, in this episode, there's a lot of the monkey finding the mask in Stanley's apartment, and you think the monkey's going to put on the mask. But they, weirdly, that never happens. They teased that so many times. I was so pissed off that we never got to see the monkey put on the mask. They tease that so many times in both parts of this crossover. How do you not do that? I don't know. And the other thing I think is... Um, what do you do with... Um, what am I trying to say? When I hear Ace Ventura and the mask in a crossover, I think surely Ace Ventura is going to get the mask on. Which we only half get, but we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to that part of the story. Yeah, so that's something I thought was surprising. I mean, um, but in this episode, you know, this first half, I think you get fun moments with the mask and Ace Ventura together. You, you get a nice callback to the, the animal friends when Ace returns to his apartment. 
Uh, Ace also denies that he has the mask, despite the fact that he knows he has it. Although I also do like that Ace does point out a flaw with him getting the mask. Aren't I already an 11 on the Kuko meter? Yeah. So, it's, uh... And then he just keeps the mask in his closet. Seems... Well, well, Stanley does, with Ace, the monkey just has it all the time. Like, he eats popcorn out of it, he juggles it. Right, he also does, um... Oh, I I noticed, you know, in, in the movie where Jim Carrey is Stanley Ipkiss, he has a picture of the, um... Of the wolf. Oh, the cartoon the wolf, yeah. And there's an off-model version of it in the cartoon, which I thought was funny. <laughs> yeah. But, um, so during during this meeting, as, as, as Stanley is trying to get the, uh, get the mask back from Ace, um, two government agents show up to hire Ace for a, for a mission, because apparently a NASA guinea pig has gone missing. And Ace just kind of immediately takes the case, abandoning Stanley in his apartment. <laughs> Hmm. But you know they go they go to a, a Cape uh, Cape Canaveral, formerly Cape Kennedy, formerly Cape Arbuckle, uh, and they uh, and I guess I thought they were going to make more of a meal out of Stanley not being able to get access to the mask, but Stanley just jumps face first into the mask the moment they arrive at the space center, and then you know he's the mask for the rest of the episode. But. Uh, we get some we get some general goofiness um, that the uh, ace it was is supposed to go into outer space to find this uh, find this uh, guinea pig so he goes in but he goes into the wrong rocket and the ace or and then the mask snuck aboard and they end up crashing uh, they end up crashing on uh, an asteroid and about the this was the and so this was the only really good animation was before the crash um, the mask and ace do this like do this uh, like samba number uh, on the ship just to pass the time and it's just such a silly gag seeing them in these samba costumes and do and like the, the animation on their dancing is pretty good but it's the only real outstanding animation that we're going to see in this episode yeah and uh, also I mean notably the, the human characters look quite a bit different in the Ace Ventura show than the mask and this is and this is where we get uh, get one of the flaws um, with the mask animated series. They do do a pretty good job holding to the movie's conceit that the mask is this person who runs on cartoon physics that exists in in a more or less real world. But the Ace Ventura cartoon already runs on cartoon physics, and since they don't amp up the mask's craziness, the mask fits into Ace Ventura's world way too well. Mm. And that and that kind of hold that kind of holds it down uh, to to the point where, like one again, one of the other conceits of the mask is that a lot of people are weirded out by the mask's antics. No one gives the mask a second thought in the Ace Ventura half of this crossover. Yeah, but it just seems do- like the mask is a sidekick in an Ace Ventura story as opposed to, you know, there's better interplay between the two, I thought, in the first in the mask uh, part of the episode. And in fact, during this this meteorite scene or meteoroid scene, the mask does refer to both Spike the Monkey or no, sorry, Ace refers to Spike the Monkey and the mask as his cowardly sidekicks. Yes. 
But this is also where we get one of the turning points because uh, you got to get some sci-fi parody in here, which strangely enough never involves Ace doing a William Shatner as Captain Kirk impression, uh, but an alien butt hugger gets attached to his butt. Uh, yes, he does, and that Ace is is trying to flirt with the uh, you know sort of female character on the other end of the line. Well, yeah, because they do get hailed by a by Deep Space Four, the space station, which is manned by only one human, a, a, a southern redhead named Doctor Space Love, which is only slightly. I can't tell if that's slightly more clever or less clever than a James Bond woman name. It's just okay. I thought it was kind of lazy. What was, um, I thought interesting is when they, you know, the ma- Ace Ventura's in the mask are both flirting with her, but Ace Ventura has the alien on his butt, and he thinks it's, I just don't uh, find it unbelievable that there's no argument about, oh, they shouldn't transport him because the alien's on his butt, because he puts everyone in danger. Yeah, and they even t- and she even talks about how catastrophic an alien infection would be, but they apparently have a transporter on the space station, so they're both teleported to the space station. Right, and you know we get some we get some antics, but uh, the the robots in the space station capture uh, Ace and perform surgery to remove the butt hugger, and while that's going on, um, the mask tries to seduce Doctor Space Love, and. There and it gets, it it gets almost uncomfortably sexual for a kids' cartoon, and not in a fun Tex Avery way, because uh, I think that's the save that's the saving grace of of the the sex in a Tex Avery cartoon, is that in the end the most libidinous character is also like their libido makes them a buffoon, but here like the mask starts sort of forcibly tangoing with Doctor Space Love and starts going off on this whole like list of romantic space metaphors. Uh, you know, I want I want to hold I want to hold uh, your celestial body. I uh, let's let's gravitate, constellate, get intimate, uh, and you know, hey, do you know any good constellations? Because I am a big dipper, and like, there's way too much emphasis on big and big dipper, rather like the emphasis on in 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 July. And it's like, wow, like he the mask really is sexually harassing this astrophysicist. But they, they do do sort of a, a conceit where she kind of goes back and forth between the two of them, and uh, it's an interesting one-upmanship, but when it's, when you think of the mask and Ace Ventura doing a crossover, you know, them flirting with some random character does not, is not what you have in mind. Like, and it would be fun to see them compete, it's just, it's so weird. I guess it's one of those things that... It like like a number of things. It's something that probably played pretty well at the time, but na- now, like now that we know way way more about sexual harassment in the workplace, it can make a lot of these interactions with Doctor Space Love very uncomfortable. Yeah, but um, yeah. So anyway, it turns out that the alien, uh, the uh, alien butt hugger grows to phenomenal size, turns into the alien from Alien and not the Predator from Predator, uh, starts wreaking havoc on the ship. We get some we get some gags with a cloning machine. Um, uh, and, in fact, a- a- Ace's clone... We're made to think that Ace dies in a fight with the monster. No, it turns out it was just his clone. Although, I guess it could have been the original. We never really learned how to distinguish the two. Um, 
but we get some awesome detective work from Ace because Ace, you know, realizes that you know, the only possible suspect uh, is Doctor Space Love, but she clearly cares. Uh, she clearly cares too much about the guinea pig to have to have done something, but then determines that the only thing that leaves the space station are garbage pods. Uh, and Ace discovers that one of the robots malfunctioned and accidentally threw the guinea pig out with the garbage, which is and which is some nice detective work. So now they have to go out and find that garbage pod and get uh, get the guinea pig back. Uh, and that's when we learn that there's a black hole parked just outside of Earth that Ace and the Mask are going to have to go into. Um, and this is where we get a weird thing, because like the, the Ace tricks the Mask into entering a rocket ship and blasts him back to Earth so he can be alone with Dr. Space Love. But when Ace is blasted in the rocket into the wormhole, he realizes he needs the Mask, who is conveniently rowing a canoe dressed as an Italian gondola driver, is driver the right word? Gondola pilot? Gondolier? Gondolier. Gondolier. Just out, out in space and not on Earth, apparently. Yeah, that's it's a strange moment. I mean, I'm not even sure, you know, why he needs the mask or why he feels... It just seems sort of out of nowhere in a way to get the mask into the story more. And and this is... And so they, they go through the wormhole, they crash on this planet full of uh, butthugger eggs... And they realize, oh, the eggs are the same shape as the garbage pod, so whatever laid the eggs must have thought that the garbage pod was their egg and brought it back to their hive. And this is where I got really ticked off, because, you know, the the mask part of this crossover ended with Dr. Pretorius and a cloned Martian being blasted into space. Well, they're in space. I want them to encounter Dr. Pretorius on this other planet. Like, there are yeah, so many opportunities to... It. Yeah, that never comes up. The fact that the villain blasted into space never comes up. Instead, we just get some antics with them and the queen butt hugger uh, and the eggs because they do find they do find um, the guinea pig. But this is when, uh, while fighting the butt hugger, the mask gets his mask knocked off, and Ace falls backwards into it. So Ace doesn't wear the mask, but his butt does. And his butt comes to life with a green Ace Ventura face, still talking in the butt voice, and kind of becomes a superhero. Yeah, and I, I wish it would have been Ace Ventura proper, not his butt that got the mask. But this sequence is way too brief. Yeah, they they only give you a, a, a give you a taste of Ace Ventura's butt uh, as the mask because uh, Ace Ace removes it pretty quick after they've trounced uh, the butt hugger queen, um, which does lead to a callback because when the mask puts the face on or puts the mask back on, he freaks out knowing that it's been on his butt and he's like washing his face and scrubbing his tongue and mask has, and Ace has that side. Ooh, a man after my own heart. Cause we all know from the first movie that Ace does that when yeah. he's disgusted. But uh, yeah, so they show, they show the butt hugger queen that it's a Guinea pig in the egg, not one of her, well, not one of her children. Uh, and so, you know, they're, they're let go. Um, and this, this points out something. So the butt hugger turns into one of those aliens, but the alien lays eggs that have more of those same kinds of aliens in it. Somehow they've made a parody of the alien that has a life cycle that is both more complicated and less interesting <laughs> than the alien. Yeah. And it seems like a lot of work put into something that's so late in the episode. 
But they get back to the they get back to the space station. They return the guinea pig again. I presume Ace gets paid. Um, they are put in a rocket and fired back to Earth. But you then find out that I uh, that they're still on the space station because apparently they used the cloning machine again. So either either they sent clones back to Earth or the originals left clones behind to seduce Doctor Space Love. And and that's pretty much that's pretty much the end of the episode. But can I talk about the laziest thing in this? Sure. Is that and I thought again, I thought this was gonna come back, but when they're fighting the butt hugger on the space station, the mask turns into a really off model power loader from aliens and supposedly vaporizes the butt hugger and he says, Yeah, yes, vaporize and you look at the label and it says teleport gun. That is a weirdly specific power for the mask to be able to manifest, but the butt hugger ends up teleported to to NASA. I thought that was going to come back. I thought they were going to like crash land on top of it or or something. Yeah, but it's just not. It almost seems like a network note like you can't vaporize an organism on your cartoon. Make it something else. Yeah, it's, it's just a, a weird way to sort of wrap up the show. Yeah. So, something I do want to uh, talk to you about. Um, who do you, between the two shows, uh, who do you think has the better theme song? The Mask. Yeah, it, it has a lot of personality and really great lyrics. The Ace Ventura one, strangely enough, sounds like they tried harder. It's, it's a kind of like surf rock song that just kind of every now and then says Ace Ventura and gives one of his character traits. Um, I, I think like I think the problem with the I, you know what I think what it is I think having watched the intros to both these shows I think I liked the Ace Ventura theme song better because it's better animated and has some original animation with it but the mask animated series uh, theme song is paired with animation that's just lifted randomly from the series uh, it's not it, it's it's just it's like just a cheap fan-made music video. The only part of original in, uh, animation is when he does this pose and his shadow turns into the logo, which is pretty cool, but it's too little too late. So yeah, Ma- The Mask has a better song, but Ace has the better intro sequence. That's fair. Is there somebody uh, stomping on cardboard boxes over there? Oh yeah, it's my dog with a toy that sounds like a plastic bag. <laughs> we ha- we have one of those for our cats. Yeah, you know, it sounds just enough like something you shouldn't be into that it's always uh, disconcerting. But yeah, so... so um, yeah, but I, I, I realize I've kind of dominated this conversation. Um, do you, like, I, I want to know more of your thoughts on this crossover. Yeah, I, you know, and I, I heard that you have a crossover between the two shows. I was surprised, and... I think I like the the first half more than the second one, but I kind of wish they would have done a big overarching story between the two. Yeah, it really it really deserves that, and it seems I can only assume that they didn't because maybe there was a rights issue between like what characters could could cross over. Because you'll notice that Milo the dog never appears in the Ace Ventura half. So I'm wondering if the Ace Ventura people could only clear the rights for the mask slash Stanley Ipkiss. And that is strange considering how much, uh, you know, Ace loves animals and how it's all about rescuing the dog in the first part. 
I mean, heck, that chase, them trying to rescue the dog, could have been what crosses them between the two shows. Yeah, instead of him sort of lamely realizing he doesn't have his mask and he's going to go after her to get him. And the odds being you'll never get a chance to do this again, I really wish they could just let Ace wear the mask, even for just one Yeah, second. yeah. I, I even thought you could do something with... Uh, when they had Ace Ventura's clone in the space uh, station, I thought, oh, well, maybe the clone is going to get the mask. Although that brings up a really interesting question, because the clone of the mask is also wearing the mask. So does that mean there's now two copies of the mask, or can that mask mm. not turn back into Stanley? Right, and if that was the case, what if you cloned the mask a bunch of time and had it over Ace Ventura's whole, like, the animal menagerie? Yeah, I don't know. It's, oh, God, that would have been fun. But yeah, there, there's just so much potential that I think is is wasted. I don't think this it, it's bad, necessarily. It's just... Okay. It's, yeah, it's it's it is it is infuriatingly okay. That's that's why I've got to give it I've got to give it a mild sequel. No, this is only for completists and the curious. Yeah, it's a sequel. No, and uh, I, I I hope we do get these shows on DVD one day. That'd be sort of interesting to get an official release of them. Um, because certainly other you know other lesser cartoons have gotten releases on DVD. And maybe it has to do something with the rights, between the movie rights and the cartoon rights. And I mean, it could. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. Yeah. Um, what else we should uh, move on to? What you're watching. You're not going to pitch a sequel for, for this? No, I don't think so. Well, all I will say is, I say, what the hell? Let's have them both team up with uh, Dumb and Dumber. Yeah. Shag and Wagon pet grooming thing gets carjacked with a bunch of pets in it. That brings an ace. Turns out they were kidnapped by Pretorius, who wants to do animal experiments. That brings in the mask. There's a whole kerfuffle. Everyone wears the mask at the end. Yeah, sounds good to me. Um, <laughs> what I've been watching, it's really been more what I've been playing. I went with some friends to an arcade recently. They had a vintage machine of baby Pac-Man. Oh, wow. Have you ever seen this one? I've yeah. seen it. I've never had the distinction of playing it. Yeah, so it it's a very large machine because the top half is a small monitor with a, as you can imagine, simple version of Pac-Man. You don't have power pellets. The ghosts look worse than in the normal game. and But if you go to the, the, the lanes at the bottom of the screen, you get kicked down to below, which is a pinball machine, about a half-size pinball machine. Yeah, it's a fascinating hybrid. It is. Unfortunately... I immediately launched the ball into a, um, I guess a, I don't know, a holding place where it could activate multi-ball, and I shut down the machine. <laughs> so I didn't get to play um, very much of it, but, we, you know, it just was fun going to an arcade, even though the, the prices I thought were pretty ridiculous. A lot of things were 50 cents when these were, like, 25 to 30-year-old games, um, but you did have some good, like, really huge uh, big-screen versions of Space Invaders uh, where there's a gun mounted, and but the, the screen is, like, 15 feet high or something, and uh, a Pac-Man on a big 15-feet-high screen, which I think is less effective because it being so big and where the joysticks are and everything, you can't see the whole board very well. Huh. What about you? What's something you've been watching? 
Well, actually, I've, I've seen a couple of things, and I don't remember. Did we? Uh, I saw the Shape of Water. Did we talk about talk about that? Previously? No, no. Uh, I'm curious about that one. I've not seen it. I've heard it's uh, um, pretty good. Oh no it 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 is a it is a very good movie. It certainly it certainly deserved to be nominated for Best Picture. Uh, it is. Please don't ask me to choose between it and Get Out because that is a heartbreaking decision for me. That yeah. being said, so keep in mind, I. Uh, Get Out was brilliant. I think uh, The Shape of Water was uh, was amazing. But everything that made The Shape of Water win Best Picture are the least interesting worst parts of the movie. What, do you mean the, uh, the special effects? Or the... No, no, the special effects oh, are great. Well. So so what, what it is, is a part of The Shape of Water is that the main character, the, um, uh, the, the mute woman... She lives in this apartment that is above a theater. So the movie makes several references to the Golden Age of Hollywood and also plays an interesting musical tribute to the Golden Age of Hollywood. And it's one of those things where if there's multiple things nominated for Best Picture, and there always are, the one that sucks Hollywood's dick is the one that gets the gets the award. Mm, yeah, that's true. It happened with La La Land. Uh, it's ha- It happened with The Shape of Water. Like, like I... That's the reason why it won Best Picture, not any of its other amazing qualities. I could see that. I was looking through my notes, and I did actually see a movie this past week. Um, it was oh. Girls Trip. Oh, with, how uh, is it? Regina Hall, Tiffany Haddish, uh, Jada Pinkett Smith, and Queen Latifah. It's it's interesting. You know, you don't see uh, typically girls in, in sort of a, a gross out sex comedy, and this one I don't think it's especially gross, but there's one sequence I want to bring up because I think it's structured pretty well um, and I, the, the weirdest thing is you have these characters that were supposed to all be friends in college and now they're you know bringing going back together for a trip to Vegas not Vegas sorry New Orleans um, and the problem is that the age difference between these people you have Jada Pinkett Smith and Queen Latifah who are let's see how old you know in in their like 40s but then you have, like, Tiffany Haddish, who's, like, in her 30s. Like, there's, like, over a 10-year difference uh, between her, between Tiffany and the other actresses in the group. Which seems a bit strange that they all met, you know, at the same time, at the same age. I don't quite buy that. But um, Well, you know, when I was, in, when I was taking my foundational uh, drawing classes uh, back at our alma mater... One of my one of my classmates was a forty uh, year old who, who was trying to become a professional photographer. So you do get people that are on the, uh, that are like outside what you would expect to be normal college range, college age range. But yeah, that does seem weird in the movie. To Where three out of better. four are in their forties and one of them's in their thirties. Yeah, it, it's just because the maybe she was a child genius. Yeah, maybe but the flashback sequences don't work. I think that well. It's, they try to have them, you know, at the the nineties. Uh, Hip hop style, which was with, with the hats and the the stripe, the zigzags and the you know yellow and purple colors and stuff. But uh, the sequence I think that that works pretty well is you have um, they really have to go to the the bathroom and they're running around this uh, this building and at the top is a uh, a zip line you can take to go from one hotel to the other. Oh yeah, that seems that seems like something that exists. It does. It's a real thing. Um, for Mardi Gras and stuff, but it, it, it's, you know, and so this character has to go to the bathroom and she keeps on going how she really has to pee. 
But then they they earlier they set up when they get into New Orleans. Um, you go and uh, they notice people doing the zip line. And they say, "Oh, that's fun. We got to do that." And so Julie has to pee, and they hook her up to the zip line to go across, and she really doesn't want to go, and she ends up peeing on the people down below. Huh. And that's followed up. You think like, "Oh, that's just the gag." It's like, nope. Because the the young one, Tiffany, played by Tiffany Haddish, goes behind him and sees that she's peeing and gets excited and says, "Oh wow, you know this is real. I didn't know you're into such uh, freaky shit. Usually, uh, I don't know. Like I, I have to take someone has to take me to a nice dinner to get this to happen." And she goes and excitingly pees in everyone below her, and it's not just a dribble; it's a flood. Hmm. Okay. So I think that's a joke that worked, and I appreciate that they did it where they made it really gross, and they didn't just sort of have things happen off screen. But in a movie that doesn't have a lot of um, pee and poop jokes, having a huge one come in at a, po at a point in a movie back-to-back, -back, I found surprising. Oh, so I'm, uh, there's one other thing I want to talk about. Before we do that, I'm just trying to make sense of Dwayne Caprizi's, Caprizi's uh, career. And I'm, I'm noticing a motif. I think he really likes characters switching brains because he has one credit on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and that's for Cowabunga Shredhead, where uh, the Shredder gets Michelangelo's personality. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. He also he also uh, wrote an episode of Alvin and the Chipmunks called Dr. Simon and Mr. Heartthrob, which is kind of a, kind of a nutty professor sort of thing, where... Uh, where one of the chipmunks gets this alternate personality who's a complete Lothario. Yeah, those are similar uh, themes running through those episodes. But the thing I really want to talk to you about, so in doing pre-search for this episode, I discovered that there was an Ace Ventura point-and-click adventure game Yes, that yep. was, in fact, uh, uh, contributed to by Dwayne Caprizi, uh, that that was done by Seventh Level, who I believe that was the same uh, same group of game developers that did Monty Python's Complete Waste of Time. That's and right. Battle Beast, one of the most unconventional and original fighting games I've ever played. And I did watch <clears throat> I did watch a little bit of footage um, of the game being played. A lot of there's a there are a lot of playthroughs of this on YouTube. Um, on the one hand, it does not look like a good game. The animation. They're trying their hardest, but the point-and-click animation isn't that good. It's certainly nowhere near the LucasArts uh, scum level. Uh, it's mainly keyframes. That being said, I am so thirsty for a point-and-click adventure game. Given the chance, I would absolutely play this to completion. And the art style does not look like the cartoon. Well, it looks like, a, it looks like the bad fan art version of the cartoon. Yeah, you know, it's simple sort of 3D graphics. Um, but the characters are all 2D. Oh. Or are there two versions of this? No, you know, I think I saw a picture where it just looked, the angle looked 3D, so. I mean, there I might know. be a, a, a sexy 3D intro for all we know. Oh, could be. Um, but yeah, uh, that's interesting. And then, you know, speaking of video games, there was a mask, a Super Nintendo game. Which oh, I, wow. I should probably play before next episode. Typical side-scroller? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a side-scroller, and you get power-ups and do things as the mask. So, and, um, and yeah, you know, that's what we'll be talking about next week, is uh, The Mask, followed by Son of the Mask. And, depending, since this is the darkest timeline, uh, Mask Junior Pet Detective. <laughs> um, an interesting uh, bit of trivia I found is Jim Carrey was offered over $10 million to do a sequel to The Mask. And he turned it down. Huh. Because he found was, working on Ace Ventura 2, it was not a challenge to return to the same character. And I'm guessing this would have been shortly after the success of The Mask? Yes, yep. Huh. Interesting. Well, I mean, I'm sure we will talk about what could have been. Exactly, and it's uh, and, you know, the mask came out the same year as Ace Ventura and Dumb and Dumber, so big year for Jim Perry. <laughs> well, you know where you can. Hey, Matt, it just occurred to me. We're friends, but we could be friendlier. How would I follow you online? Yeah, so to follow me, it would be on Twitter at matwbt. Uh, you can also follow the show on Facebook. Just look up Sequelcast Two. And if one was so inclined, you could follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. So for Sequelcast 2, this is Matt. <laughs> this is Thrasher. Saying. Assorted monkey noises. Assorted monkey noises. Say, but there's one last thing I gotta sing about. Open up wide.